Hey yo, what's going on everybody? This is Austin coming back at you with another episode of the Coffee Break Hams podcast. Today on the podcast, we are going to be talking about airways and specifically why we see challenges in the field with having airway failures. This um, talk is brought about uh, because I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about airways and uh, when you really look at the data, we got about 40 to 45 percent of uh, field of pre-hospital intubations result in some sort of either hypotensive or hypoxic event after the intubation or around the intubation phase. We'll call it the peri-intubation phase. And uh, it's not really that much better in hospitals, looking at about 36% of hospital intubations having some sort of hypoxic event or some sort of hypotensive event. And I find that um, there's a few very common issues that we see in the field. There's a very, um, very common issues that we see when uh, we're bringing new people on to, into our organization, um, you know, that have a lot of these preconceived notions, uh, you know, maybe from school or, or whatever, um, uh, that I think maybe led them down a little bit of a wrong path. And so we're going to get into it here in just a sec. But before I get into the calls, uh, or in, excuse me, into the case, remember that, um, if you are a frequent listener and you have not given us our five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, then pretty please just pause it real quick and go ahead and give us our rating. All right, so let's get into it. So you are a newer paramedic and you get the call. And generally, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? It's that respiratory call. You immediately can tell from the dispatch like, all right, this patient's pretty sick. You guys go on route, you and your partner are kind of navigating through the, you know, navigating through um, getting to the call together. That's a whole, you know, logistical thing in and of itself. Uh, and then firefighters give you an update when they get uh, to scene uh, and they say that the patient was found agonally breathing and they are now bagging the patient. All of those days uh, from back in medic school are playing in your mind. You're remembering all your skill sheets and you're like, all right, like I've intubated a mannequin 50 times. Like I got that one intubation when I was doing that clinical rotation on the, on the uh, uh, surgical unit, like I'm good. Or in, and your confidence is only slightly being clouded by the large amount of butterflies in your stomach. And you're kind of wondering why your cheeks are feeling so hot. You don't want to tell your partner that you're kind of like a little bit terrified. So you just kind of play it cool. And, and you know, you're like, eh. I got this, but you don't say that because you know that as soon as you open your mouth, the incredible amount of nerves and butterflies is probably going to be evident on your voice, and so you stay silent. No real pre-plan, no real communication, just silent apprehension. Your partner understands this. They've been around for quite some time, but they're not about to call you on on it. So you get on scene, you and your partner walk into the living room, you see this like 40s-ish male, pretty big dude. His eyes are like partially open, kind of looking through you, being bagged by firefighters. When you walk into the room, they all immediately look to you for direction. You are the leader now. And that feeling of dread is starting to creep up in you. That feeling of insecurity is starting to creep up in you. You're kind of like, all right, I need to say something, but I'm afraid that my voice is going to crack as soon as I open my mouth. So you do a little box breath, 
you let the scene start to sink in. You tell your partner, all right, go get the monitor on, go get an IV established, or rather you'll go get an IV established. Check a blood sugar, comes back at 99. Okay, that's not it. Somebody in the background says that they already tried Narcan. You're not really who sure who said that. You don't really know a whole lot of the people in the room. You're pretty new. The wife does mention kind of in the background that he has depression. You're still not really sure who's kind of giving you report in the room, but it's okay. I mean, right? Um, uh, you'll get there and you're like, okay, so it's not an overdose or maybe it is. The wife said that he has depression. All right, so if it is an overdose, what did he overdose on? I mean, it's not a narcotic, and but you're being super distracted right now because you look at the cardiac monitor and you see that his saturations are in the 80s. You can't really pay attention to that voice that keeps talking to you and the wife that keeps talking to you like, Jesus, this guy just needs to be intubated. Oh shit, those sats suck, right? So you and your partner, you set up for this intubation, you're getting ready to take over bagging. You're like, all right, let's get um, you know, let's get the entitled CO2 hooked up. I don't want to forget that. Uh, so somebody's hooking that up. You know, you're starting to feel a lot of eyes on you. You know that you haven't said a whole lot of words so far. Um, you know, you're wondering why, uh, you know, what the heck is going on with this patient. And at the same time, these firefighters in the room are wondering why you haven't fixed the patient. The sats are not coming up. I've taken bagging over. And for some reason, those freaking saturations are still in the 80s. The entitled CO2 is 18. You like quickly check a pulse and you're like, yeah, dude's still got a pulse. Uh, the entitled CO2 just has a crappy waveform. It's not box-like at all. The first blood pressure, blood pressure flashes, and you see that it's super soft. The heart rate's pretty fast. You're like, man, we've got to get this guy tubed. Screw it. Let's do it. He's only getting worse. Let's get this intubation done. Now, if you normally listen to the podcast, you know that uh, uh, hopefully my speech is not as scattered as it was over the past three or four minutes. And that was intentional, right? So, I mean, those those are kind of the thoughts that I think that a lot of people have when they're first entering into the field for the first, you know, several months, several, maybe even year or two when they get into a critical scene. Uh, you know, they walk into a room and they, they don't really know how to respond to being the leader in that circumstance. They don't necessarily uh, have a pre-plan in their head of all the little minute things that need to get done in order to accomplish a goal, and they start just kind of reacting to all of these things that are happening around them. They're not able to take in maybe all of the information that they necessarily should. And it's especially apparent in a situation like this where a patient needs to be intubated and they are not doing well before the intubation. And unfortunately, we get sucked into this trap of saying, well, the patient isn't getting any better, so we are going to use this magical piece of plastic called the endotracheal tube, and we are going to put it into his trachea, and somehow that is going to fix this person's problems. Unfortunately, you're not always right. However, going back to the scene, you grab that blade. It's a Mac 4. Your instructor told you to use a Mac 4. You grab your tube, it's an 8.0. All adult men need an 8.0. That's what you were told. You tell your partner to make that ET tube look like a hockey puck. You remember that that is what your instructor told you in medic school, and it seemed to like work for them. And so uh, that's what you're going to do from here on out. You're quickly remembering that advice that you got in school as well, right? So I'm going to put the blade into the molecula, I'm going to push toward the feet, and I'm going to see the cords. So I quickly go into the mouth and I see pink. 
and I see tongue and I see nothing of value, right? And how many of you guys have experienced that, right? We learned in school, we learned growing up in school that uh, when you intubate somebody, you put the blade into the mouth and you lift it or you push it toward the toes or something like that. And then magically you see those big pearly gates and you get to intubate that person. Um, unfortunately, uh, in that moment, when you go in and you lift and you just see pink and you see tongue, uh, you realize that that little tiny mouth in that moment has now become the largest cavity in the human body in the history of ever. You don't know where you are. You start going deeper and you're lifting harder and your hand is shaking. You're lifting so hard and you're now feeling insecure because you think that people think that that's nerves, but really you are just lifting with every freaking ounce of strength that you can possibly muster because you just know that if you lift up harder, you're going to see what you want to see. And then you're like, shit, where is that blood coming from? You think you've only been in the mouth for like five seconds, but the experienced fire medic in the room is now like, yo, it's been 30 seconds. But you're like, all right, I'm almost there. And your partner's like, hey, dude, the stats are 61%. His heart rate's 44. You realize as you start to block those numbers out of your out of your thought because you know that you're getting close you realize oh my gosh i've been too deep this whole time and you start to pull back and then boom you see those cards drop in but then the tube won't go anterior enough to get it in at that point you realize there's no way i'm getting this i've got to back out and then you hear your partner say he's in a sicily steve start compressions what we just heard was not unheard of when we just heard was something that I have probably witnessed something that I've probably been almost guilty of I mean I don't I don't think I can't recall any time that I've ever had a patient arrest during one of my intubations but I am definitely sure that I've spent too long in an airway and it probably resulted in a significant hypoxic event a hypotensive event that probably affected somebody's eventual outcome and mortality and what we just heard is something called the airway death spiral, not a term that's coined by me. I heard it first um, uh, from Dr. Ruben Strayer on a video that he made about the proper use of a bag valve mask. Um, I don't know if he was actually the one that coined it or not, but I feel like we see these things like all the time. And I think it's because we focus on a lot of maybe the incorrect thing when we're going into the mouth. We take a lot of these BLS things for granted, and everybody likes to say, well, BLS before ALS, but do we really do that, and do we really practice that? And so I, I think that uh, uh, you know something that we really need to take to heart and something we need to remember is that intubation is not a life-saving procedure. The plastic does nothing other than make it easier for you to just ventilate the lungs instead of the lungs and the belly if you need to have a little higher pressures. But intubation does not improve oxygenation. Intubation does not improve ventilation if you're doing it properly. Intubation just makes it a little safer, a little easier for your patient to receive the gas that you are wanting to give them. Good ventilation, good BLS ventilation, is a life-saving procedure. If you are a person in the field that is going to attempt intubation, you must be good at intubating people. 
But to help you out and give you a little bit more time, you must be amazing at ventilation. And that is a very distinct thing. You can be good at intubation, and you should be, but you have to be amazing at ventilation. And obviously, I'm talking like a, uh, you know, talking a big game here. Um, uh, and so if I don't give you some solutions, then this first 15 minutes was kind of a waste of your time. So what we're going to do is we're going to break it down and just do three tricks for each little thing. The first is three tricks to be amazing at BLS ventilation. And the first is that a bag valve mask does not truly improve oxygenation by itself. The second is how we grab the BVM. And then this, the third is how we seal the BVM. So let's go back to the first thing. So a bag valve mask does not in and of itself improve oxygenation. When you breathe for somebody, when you force gas in and out of their body, you know, 10 or 12 times a minute with a bag valve mask, and you're squeezing about a third to a half of the bag, so you're giving them these big, huge tidal volumes of 800 milliliters or so, what are you actually manipulating? You're not manipulating their oxygenation. All you're manipulating is their ventilation, right? So when you make volume come in and out of the lungs repeatedly every minute, all you're doing is you are changing the CO2 level in the body. You're not really improving oxygenation. There's only three ways to improve oxygenation in a human body. The first is to increase the amount of oxygen that you're giving them, the concentration of oxygen that you're giving them. We know that if somebody's on a ventilator, you can simply dial the oxygen percentage you'd like to deliver, but on a bag valve mask, you can't really do that. However, we do know that if you increase the flow coming into that person's body, then you are going to be increasing the, um, the concentration of gas coming into their body. And so increasing the flow to 15 or to 25 liters per minute, we know that we are going to be increasing the concentration of gas that's coming into the body. But at some point, you can only get to 100%, right? You can only be delivering 100% FiO2 or 100% oxygen into the body. And sometimes that's not going to increase their oxygen enough in their body, increase their saturations enough in their body to get above 90 or 95%. And how is that even possible, right? If you give 100% oxygen into the lung, how is it possible that that person cannot have 100% oxygen going into their blood uh, or, or being represented in their blood, rather? And it's pretty easy. I mean, it's, uh, there's only one thing that it really can be, and it's some sort of shunt, some sort of alveolar shunt. And what that really means is that there's some parts of the lung that are receiving the oxygen that you want to give it and some parts of the lung that are not receiving oxygen that you are trying to give it. And so let's just, for example, say this person was intubated and they had a right main stem intubation, right? And obviously this is not uh, uh, correlating with this exact scenario that we're talking about, but it just makes it easy, right? So we'll just say it was a right main stem intubation. So their right lung is receiving all of the oxygen in the world. It's receiving 100% oxygen, but the left lung is not receiving any oxygen at all, right? The left lung is not receiving any fresh gas. So the oxygen concentration coming into the lungs from the right side of the heart is about 50% saturated or so. And as the 
blood circulates through that whole right lung that's receiving 100% oxygen through it, the blood that is leaving that right lung and going back to the left side of the heart is going to have an oxygen saturation of 100%, maybe even a little more than 100% because you're starting to diffuse oxygen into the plasma, so you have a very high PaO2. In the left side of the lung, however, uh, or excuse me, in the left lung, blood entering the left lung is satting at 50%, and it gets no new oxygen, and so it leaves the left lung at also 50%. Assuming that your body gives about 50% of your blood volume to your left lung and 50% to the right lung, it may vary a little bit. Your right lung is a little bigger. But when the 100% saturated right lung blood mixes with the 50% saturated left lung blood, all of a sudden the saturations that you're seeing on that person's finger is reading 75%, right? The average between the two. And so obviously if you're just doing BLS ventilations, you can't right mainstem somebody, but think about the person who has a bunch of pulmonary edema. Think about the person who has um, a bunch of nasty pneumonia or consolidations. Um, think about the person who has collapsed alveoli. They have atelectasis because they've been taking little teeny tiny breaths because they overdosed or something like that, right? So you're giving 100% oxygen into the lung, but if it's not getting to every single little alveoli, then you are not going to be saturating at 100%. And so a bag valve mask itself does not improve oxygen. The thing that improves oxygen is a bag valve mask that has lots of flow coming through it, so a high concentration of oxygen, plus we've got to be able to recruit all of that lung. We've got to be able to open those alveoli back up, and we don't do that by slamming big forceful breaths into their lungs when we squeeze that bag. We need to leave air, we need to leave gas inside of the lungs all the time in order to really start to recruit that lung. And we do that with PEEP, right? We do it with a PEEP valve that we can put on our bag valve mask. So number one of the three tricks to being amazing at ventilation is that a bag valve mask in and of itself is a worthless murder weapon. A bag valve mask that is having high flow through it with a peep valve attached to it, especially if it has a manometer attached to it so you don't accidentally bag them too hard when you're breathing, that is a life-saving tool and a life-saving piece of equipment. Trick number two to being amazing at ventilation is that the CNE grip is not very good. If you do a CNE grip and you tilt that head back and you try to bag them, you are not really opening their airway. And I encourage you guys to test it yourselves. So look at your, um, uh, or just look straight ahead in an anatomical position and then place yourself in the same position that you would do uh, putting a patient in it with a CNE grip on a bag valve mask. So place yourself into that that head tilt chin lift position looking straight up at the sky and tell me how easy it is to talk. And also think about where your epiglottis is when you place yourself in that head tilt chin lift. Oftentimes your epiglottis is actually going to be kind of flopping over the top of your trachea. And so if you were an unconscious person who is unable to maintain his own open airway, a CNE grip would actually be less optimal than just placing a patient on their freaking back in the anatomical position and not trying to manipulate their airway at all. So the CNE grip, no bueno. And I really don't think that we should be doing it at all on really anybody. 
What we should be doing on somebody is placing people into the sniffing position. And that's right. Every paramedic listening to this knows what the sniff and nurse knows what the sniffing position is, right? That's what our instructors told us to do in school. And that's what we've been telling our students to do and our preceptees to do and everybody else around us. Oh, you need to place the patient into the sniffing position. But what is the sniffing position? If I place myself in a head tilt chin lift and I look straight up at the sky, I've never smelled anything like that in my life. And I don't think that anybody in this listening to this podcast has ever smelled anything in that position in their life at all, right? I never look up straight at the stars in order to smell something. If there's flowers on a table and I'm going to go sniff them and I lean forward into that sniffing position, what I'm doing is I extend my head out a little bit toward that thing and I'm extending my ears up toward the level of my sternum and I'm physically giving myself the most open airway possible. And so if you imagine that in a patient, if you imagine your patient laying on their back and uh, needing to be placed into the sniffing position, what that entails is you putting both of your thumbs down on their cheekbones, grabbing the back of their jaw and lifting that jaw up toward the ceiling to physically lift their head toward the ceiling and place them into that sniffing position. So the sniffing position, which we've all been told is what we need to do, is the actual correct thing. We need to be placing our patients into the sniffing position. Where we've been going astray is that we then say, we're going to do that by placing them in a head tilt chin lift. And that is not the sniffing position. The real sniffing position is by using a jaw thrust maneuver. All right, so number one, a bag valve mask does not improve oxygenation by itself. You need lots of flow and you need some peep in order to do that. So we're gonna be flowing our bag valve masks at like 15 liters a minute and we're gonna be hitting our peep valve right around 10 or 15 centimeters of water pressure. The CNE grip number two is garbage and we shouldn't be doing it. We should be using a jaw thrust, putting that person actually into the sniffing position, especially if we're using it with an adjunct like an OPA, then that is the absolute best position that we should be putting our patients in. The third and final thing is that mask seal is imperative in order to actually be able to oxygenate your patient and to ventilate your patient properly and to get good entitled CO2s. And this is something that may be difficult to visualize unless you have a bag valve mask right in front of you. But And the first thing is, is that no matter what you do, you are going to have some amount of leak on that bag valve mask around the, uh, around the mask. You cannot avoid some amount of leak coming out of there, but you can actually compensate for that by having a ton of flow coming into that area. And so we need to additionally, on top of just having a bag valve mask flowing in them at 15 liters per minute, we need to place a nasal cannula on their nose at 15 liters per minute. And that should not scare anybody. A nasal cannula can absolutely flow 15 liters per minute through it. This is not um, new science at all. Um, I take my word for it if you, uh, if you want to, but otherwise you can look at the many, 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 many studies out there that say that nasal cannulas can be safely, um, uh, uh, safely have flow rates of, of 45 to 60 liters per minute through them. And so 15 liters per minute is nothing. So this patient up until this point um, now has 
a total of 30 liters per minute going through this circuit. They have 15 from the BVM, 15 from the nasal cannula. They've got a PEEP valve that's dialed up to, let's just say, 15 a PEEP. So we've got our 15, 15, 15. And we are using a two thumbs down technique on the bag valve mask while lifting that person's jaw and lifting their head into that sniffing position. We're using an OPA to help with an adjunct. The other thing with creating a good seal on a bag valve mask is that if you just plop a mask down onto a patient's face, you generally have most of the inflated part of the mask kind of sitting inside of the, we'll say the, the hard plastic portion of the mask, right? So if you look at a mask, you have the hard plastic portion that's got the pointed top and the rounded bottom, and then you have the big inflated kind of cuff, we'll just say, um, and that helps you to create the seal. In some bag valve masks, you can even add more air to that cuff in order to get a better seal. But if you just put a bag valve mask on a face, most of that cuff kind of ends up on the inside of the uh, bag valve mask on the mask portion, that, that hard portion. And so in order to create a much better seal, if you actually reach your fingers inside of where the mask is and you pull the cuff uh, laterally, so you're pulling all that inflated part as lateral as possible, and then you seat the pointed top on the nose first, and then you roll it down onto the bottom, and you keep all that cuff kind of lateral, so it's not sitting kind of inside and, and almost covering you know the corners of the mouth, but you keep it all outside, it'll actually create an amazingly better seal. And so I know that that's very difficult to kind of picture unless you're looking at a bag valve mask or you're practicing it on, um, uh, practicing it on a mannequin. But essentially, as you're sitting it down on the person's face, just put your fingers on the inside of the cuff, pull them laterally, so that way you get most of the cuff kind of facing outwards. Um, uh, and uh, and as you place it on the person's um, nose and then mouth, you kind of release that, um, and you'd be amazed what uh, how much better of a seal you'd be getting on that bag valve mask. All right, so those are the three tricks to being amazing at BLS ventilation. Bag valve masks are useless murder weapons without a peep valve and without flow. CNE grip, no bueno. We should be using a two thumbs down technique on the bag valve mask, and we should be doing a jaw thrust technique to physically open the airway. And then the third and final is that getting a good seal is imperative. So putting a nasal cannula on underneath with 15 liters per minute helps with creating a good seal and also properly kind of widening that mask a little bit with your fingers as you place it onto the face is going to improve your seal a ton. If you do those things, you should get oxygen saturations of 100%. No problem, because you're overcoming any need for increased FiO2, you're overcoming any need for increased pressure or PEEP in the body, and you are creating a perfect seal to maintain um, all of those good thoracic pressures when you place that bag valve mask on them. Uh, all right, so moving on to the three tricks to improve your first pass success today with intubation. First and foremost, the number one reason that people fail intubations is improper positioning of the airway. And that is that we try to ramp people up a little bit and then we place people into that sniffing position. And the sniffing position, uh, the incorrect sniffing position, that head tilt chin lift, is not a good position for the airway. Now, the next time you are in your training room, I, what I want you to do is when you are practicing your intubation, I want you to place that mannequin in a head tilt chin lift. And I want you to insert the blade, uh, just a Mac 4, whatever you want to intubate with, 
insert that Mac 4 into the mouth and see how difficult it is with this mannequin in order to intubate this mannequin in order to see the vocal cords. And I think that you'll have a lot of challenges seeing the vocal cords. Now, just place the patient in an anatomical position. Don't manipulate the head at all. More than likely, you'll be able to see the vocal cords pretty good on, on the patient or on the mannequin. Not, not great, but you'll definitely be able to see them. Now, I want you to actually physically lift that mannequin's head off the ground, force the ear of that mannequin to come in line with the level of their sternal notch, that, that little notch at the top of your sternum. So bringing that ear all the way up to their sternal notch and then look in the mouth. And I think that you will be amazed at how easy it is to actually see those vocal cords. And it's a pretty obvious thing, right? So, I mean, if you place yourself in that position right now, you kind of have to extend your head out um, pretty far in order to get your ear all the way up to the line of your sternal notch. But when you do that, what has happened to your face and to your neck? Well, your oral axis and your tracheal axis have now become almost a line, and that is what you need in order to be successful at intubating somebody. So if you just look at yourself right now sitting in an anatomical position, your mouth is you know, horizontal, your mouth is, is parallel with the ground or your mouth and tongue. And we'll call that your oral axis. So if you were to put a, uh, um, a popsicle stick in your mouth right now, it would go flat, right? It'd be at zero degrees. And so um, you have a, a flat oral axis. And now look at your trachea. Your trachea is almost straight up and down. So it's a vertical axis. And so what you have right there, your oral axis and your tracheal axis are almost at 90 degrees, meaning that you have to make a 90 degree turn in order to intubate you right now. But if you place yourself way forward into that sniffing position, the proper one where you are doing a jaw thrust and maybe patting under the head, patting under the neck a little bit, um, bringing that head way up into a more proper position, and you're placing those ears all the way up to the level of the sternum, all of a sudden your oral axis and your tracheal axis become a much straighter line. And you know maybe if they only get reduced to a 30 degree angle, um, that's fine. You only have to make a 30 degree turn in order to see those vocal cords in order to intubate that patient versus making a 90 degree turn in an anatomical position. That's pretty freaking good. Um, uh, so proper positioning of the airway is the number one reason that people fail intubations is that they do not properly position the airway. The second thing, the second trick that'll make you a better intubator is that you should never stick the blade into the mouth first. The blade should never be the first thing to enter the mouth. The first thing that should always enter the mouth should be suction. Don't hold suction the way that you normally hold suction. If you uh, don't know how you should be holding suction, you kind of hold it like a um, uh, like a dagger that's pointing down. Um, you shouldn't hold it, you know, kind of lengthways in your hand, putting your finger over that little hole on a Yankauer. Oftentimes those holes don't even exist on Yankauers anymore. Um, but you should be holding a suction like a knife that you're about to murder somebody with. And that is the really the proper way to hold suction. And you can look at tons and tons of YouTube videos online on the much better way to hold suction. So you insert that suction into the mouth blindly um, into the mouth uh, with your right hand. If you get a ton of stuff coming up out of that suction, a ton of blood, a ton of secretions, then we probably shouldn't immediately go into that airway, right? We should start suctioning some of this stuff out before we put our blade in there and start mucking up our blade and our light and everything else. And so we need to suction first. And then we follow the blade down our suction catheter 
into the mouth, but we're going to keep our suction in there until we actually get a good visualization on the cords. There's no need to pull that suction out of the mouth in that moment. The third thing outside of proper positioning and leading with suction, first thing to enter the mouth is suction. The very last thing is that we are not in the business of laryngoscopy. And what that means is that, you know, our instructors, when we were learning how to intubate, they were like, yeah, put your blade in the molecular and then you're going to lift up and you're going to see the larynx. You're going to see the vocal cords and that is laryngoscopy. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen in real life, right? When you put the blade in the mouth and you lift up, all you see is pink. You don't see shit ever when you are trying to intubate somebody. I can count the amount of times on like one finger the that I went into the mouth, lifted up, and I immediately saw some vocal cords and with a grade one view, and I was like, this is the easiest intubation I've ever had in my entire life. Every other time, you kind of have to work for it just a little bit. And so we need to stop looking for the vocal cords. We are not in the business of laryngoscopy. What we are in the business of when we are trying to be effective intubators is we are in the business of uvuloscopy. All we're looking for is the uvula. We're just looking for the little tiny dangly right at the end of the soft palate on the roof of the mouth. That's what we're looking for. Look for the uvula first. And if you know where that uvula is, if you can see the uvula when you go into the mouth, then that mouth isn't very big anymore, right? Because you know exactly where you are. The only time that the mouth becomes the largest cavity in the human body is as soon as you get lost. As soon as you only see pink and tongue and stuff and you have no idea where you are, all of a sudden that trachea becomes the smallest little needle in a stack of needles. But if you go into the mouth and you're looking for the uvula and you see the uvula, you know exactly where you are. And if I see the uvula, I know what part of the tongue I'm on too. And so I can go just a little deeper with my blade and oh, wouldn't you know it, I'm almost immediately going to see the tip of the epiglottis. If I see the tip of the epiglottis, now I do actually know where the vollecula is and I can get in it or I can just grab the epiglottis. And then when I lift up, oftentimes I'm not just going to see this amazing grade one view, but at least I'm hopefully going to see the arytenoids, which are those little, um, uh, those little nodes that separate your esophagus from your trachea. So I'm going to see my arytenoids and hopefully see my arytenoid notch. And if I can see that, I don't even need to see the trachea at that point, right? I know exactly where I am in the mouth. I see my arytenoids. I know that anything below that is esophagus and anything above that is trachea. So yes, while it'd be incredibly nice to see my vocal cords, to really truly visualize the tube going through the cords, um, and, and I'm going to strive for that every single time, but if I always know where I am inside the mouth and I don't get lost, then there's really no issue, right? I mean, you, you are going to be successful if you know where you are. All right. That's it. So the three tricks to improve your first pass success today, proper positioning of the airway, lead with suction, and make sure to stop looking for those freaking vocal cords and start just looking for the uvula. All right, I hope that you liked the episode today, probably a little bit on the longer side, as they all seem to be nowadays. Um, 
Uh, sorry that this one took a few extra days to get on um, line. Had a very, very busy few days uh, over the past week or so. Uh, anyway, appreciate everybody stopping by. As always, if you um, have any suggestions for any further episodes, want to get in touch, chit-chat about this episode, feel free to reach out to me at kaisercpr.gmail.com. That's K-I-S-E-R-C-P-R at gmail.com. And I'll see you guys in two weeks.